Today's episode of More Than One Thing is sponsored by Joe Malone London. I love how something as simple as the warmth and fragrance of a burning candle has the ability to envelop your senses and transport you to a fond memory, which is so important now as we spend more time at home. Joe Malone London has always looked at stories and moments in time to capture those magic moments in their candles, and I'm excited to tell you more about their new townhouse collection. The Joe Malone London Townhouse Collection is inspired by celebratory scenes in a classic London townhouse. Each of the six scented candles has its own specific mood, unique design, and an enchanting story to tell. What truly captured my attention was the elegantly understated design of the vessels themselves, carefully crafted in unglazed white ceramic and detailed with the finer features of Georgian architecture. To discover the Joe Malone London Townhouse Collection for yourself, visit joemalone.com. Welcome to More Than One Thing with me, Athena Calderon, the podcast focused on non-traditional career paths, creative endeavors, and the ever-evasive multi-hyphenate. We live in a world today which encourages us to be the multifaceted humans that we are, though we're still subjected to antiquated pressures to follow a single path to success. But there is so much beauty to be found in our complexities, and I want to encourage you to embrace your full self. This is a podcast about taking the road less traveled, to find your passion and purpose while navigating the hurdles and hoops we all jump through on this personal and creative journey. I'm your host, Athena Calderon, author, interior designer, chef, recipe developer, entertaining expert, creative director, stylist, product designer, storyteller, editor, and certified oversharer. Does that sound like an insanely long way to describe my career? Well, it is, and that's exactly why we're all here. Every week, I'll be sitting down with another multi-hyphenate who I admire deeply to talk through their struggles, vulnerabilities, and eventual successes throughout their long and winding journey to where they are now. Because it's in other stories, I believe we can always see a little piece of ourselves. Today's guests and my dear friends are some of the most prolific and influential designers of our time. Robin Standifer and Stephen Alesh have transformed museum galleries, hotels, movie sets, restaurants, and homes alike. I mean, simply calling them designers doesn't even begin to cover it. The scope of their work is vast and, quite frankly, phenomenal. Their award-winning firm, Roman & Williams, has designed everything from restaurants like Le Cuckoo, hotels like The Ace, nightclubs like The Boom Boom Room, to private homes of celebrities like Gwyneth Paltrow. With an emphasis on high-quality materials and artisanal techniques, Robin and Stephen bring a feeling of history to each new space they create, making the old seem current and the current seem everlasting. 
Just recently, Robin and Stephen completed their most impressive undertaking, a complete renovation of the British galleries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. But it all started in the early 90s, when Robin met Stephen on the set of a movie. Robin was a fast-talking New Yorker with an encyclopedic knowledge of art history who had built a career in production design and consulting for some of the most respected directors in the world, including Martin Scorsese. Stephen, on the other hand, was a laid-back art director from California with an innate understanding of proportion and harmony and a mastery of traditional architectural techniques. They fell in love, and in 2005, they married. Together, Robin and Stephen worked on the set design for films like Practical Magic and Zoolander. Tired of watching their work be destroyed once filming wrapped, in 2002, they started their interior design and architecture firm, Roman & Williams. To date, Roman & Williams have been named America's 50 Most Influential Designers by Fast Company, topped Architectural Digest's 100 list multiple times, and won the design category for the Wall Street Journal 2017 Innovators Award among many other impressive achievements. In 2017, they established their first retail and restaurant project, Roman and Williams Guild and La Mercerie. Occupying an entire city block in Soho, RW Guild is the truest expression of their life's work. With an incredible selection of curated furniture and objects set alongside a collection of pieces they designed themselves, R.W. Guild is a defining voice in the world of design. In true multi-hyphenate fashion, when it comes to R.W. Guild, Robin and Stephen do it all. From traveling the world, searching for unknown artisans, to creating all the evocative visual content for the website, it's almost impossible to imagine how they find the time to foster a business while also running an award-winning design firm. Yet they do so, and they do it with unbelievable focus and grace. And as if their lives aren't already filled to the brim, Stephen is also an exceptional draftsman and craftsman who builds furniture in his woodshop, and Robin is a self-taught ceramicist and gardener. Seriously, though, talk about doing more than one thing. Ever busy, but never complacent, there's really only one word to describe Robin and Stephen. Visionaries. And I couldn't be more excited to welcome them to more than one thing. Robin, Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Athena. Thank you. Yeah, exciting. You know, you guys both seem to be people that always have a lot of creative endeavors happening at the same time. And you bridge so many worlds surrounding design and architecture and curation and history. And have you guys ever struggled with that answer when somebody says to you, well, what do you do for a living? Yes, right. It's such an interesting question because I think it's something that has really brought Stephen and I together in the sense that we always had an interest in so many different things. And so there was this interest in sort of distillation, distillation in the sense that look at, you know, the book we made for Rizzoli, we called Things We Made because we just weren't comfortable with it just being interior design or just being styling or just being architecture. And it was something that was about 
a kind of more layered approach, a more complex approach, and a just really hearty appetite for creativity in a lot of different areas and spheres. And we've always been excited by that. I mean, we're gardeners and we're designers and, and architects. It also is interesting because I think that you don't have to be a remarkable expert at one. I mean, there's some idea that by doing too many things, you're an amateur. And I think there's some parts of that that are true. And so there's something to us about the power of making something at the highest and lowest level that's so exciting and interesting that that's sort of what's driven us to have the appetite for so many different areas of investigation. Right. It's funny because I was just trying to write down off the top of my head, my um, multi-hyphenates. It's funny because I've always <laughs> used the term slash, right? Because you say, hey, Stephen, what, so what exactly are you, right? And that, it's happened in my yeah. life. Well, there's always a slash, right? But I think my, my hyphen is really architect, artist, designer, which is a word that I, I don't use a lot, but I, I respect it more than I did growing up. I, I, it means everything to me, the word designer now. Right. But I'm also sort of a farmer, a little hobby, like an amateur farmer, but I'm a pretty good farmer a chef and I'm a pretty good surfer. I, I keep it very private. That's true. We're restaurateurs now. Yeah, that's yeah we're restaurateurs. We own a but restaurant. all of that is part <laughs> of this like journey toward wanting to investigate creativity in everything we do. I, I've always, I was always excited by people who, and again, I guess it is about this hybrid. I, I've never used the word hyphen so much, Athena. I like it. But the hybrid, like people who are artists who paint on their furniture, right? Like at Guild, we're really into these collaborations where there's a cabinet that's very functional and detailed, and then it also becomes a piece of art as a painting. So how can things be more than one thing? So you're talking about people as more than one thing, right? And I think we're so interested in things being more than one thing and architecture being more than one thing. It's like we've always talked about our architecture as having an, more of an ethos than a style. Mm-hmm. So it's breaking away from a linear way of thinking. I, I think the mm-hmm. way Stephen and I were raised, like I think because we didn't have super formal training, so there was just this openness about creativity. And yeah. I think growing up, I mean, we, we were born in like, the 60s. We didn't like formal training. If we, we, sat into a, we sat in a classroom with some stiff formal trainer. I mean, I respect formal training a lot, for sure, especially as I get older. I, I totally respect it. But I, I knew as kids, Robin and I, I think we didn't know each other as kids, but we know we would have been friends because we were like crawling out the windows of our classrooms. You know, we just wanted to be out in the world. and As much as you don't have formal training, you have training in life, right? Because you studied fine arts and painting, right, Robin? And Correct. art history. And you interned at architecture firm, Stephen. And yeah, you also, yeah. didn't you study philosophy and engineering? And you're an incredible draftsman. So you are trained, but maybe not in a it's true. in a technical sense that it is exactly what led you to your career. If you can talk a little bit about how your careers have rolled out in a non-linear way, like what how you started and how life really took you by surprise. It's a very tough conversation to get through with when you go to professional parties or meetings or even with clients, right? And they want like a to be honest, an elevator pitch on who you are and what your education is. And I've always been a bit stumped. And you get stuck with these terms like untrained or 
self-taught. And it's really a simplification. I'll speak for myself right now, but like, I mean, I left uh, college pretty young. My sophomore year, I started uh, I started working in an architecture office. So um, I was really, really young, pretty pretty raw kid. But I all, all my drawing skills at the time, because I could draw pretty really well, were from high school drafting classes. It was my only real training. My sophomore year of college, when I left the universities, I was a little frustrated by the architectural um, programs that I saw around the country. 84 was the height of, to be honest, kind of this ludicrous modernist uh, philosophy that was just blanketing the the world. <laughs> there was zero, zero interest in traditional architecture. And as a kid, I, I always loved traditional buildings and traditional architecture. I was a bit sentimental about it. And I loved, I just loved older buildings. And uh, it was just absolutely taboo in architecture uh, programs and schools and teachers. And the teachers were brutal about it. I mean, they just laughed you out of the classroom if you if you drew a cottage or something, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. well, because it's this yeah. idea of beauty. I mean, Stephen yeah. and I really do embrace, and it's so ironic to say, like, we have a chip on our shoulders for wanting things to be beautiful, but we always oh. believed that architecture, design, botany, gardening, yeah. all of these things, even food. And there's been a, this is a big movement mm-hmm. that connects, I think, a very intensive linear education, which obviously can yield some incredible people, mm-hmm. but it sort of undermines this innate curiosity. So we were both, I think, really innately curious kids. And like Stephen says, he had a really innate skill for drawing. I always had an innate skill for combining objects and putting them mm-hmm. together. And I, I mean, initially I thought I wanted to be a sculptor, a collage artist, even I mean, just kind of investigating this idea of collecting and the stories that objects told to each other and the kind of voltage they had together. And so these are things that I think can come as as children. And and maybe the, the fact that we didn't have parents that pushed us toward formal educations in one area, right? Because when you have that, and I think that still we are vulnerable sometimes about being in a room in a place like the Met where there is a requirement for a certain, you went to Oxford, you went to Cambridge, you went to Harvard. I mean, when you're sitting at that table, there are these boxes that get checked for these people. And then there are, yeah, the credentials are a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. And we've always sort of, you know, been interested to expressing our just fundamental principles and kind of governing vision and really spending a lot of time getting excited about it and studying it in our own way and and having a big appetite for it. And then, you know, there have been certainly like failures and successes because sometimes there's some people that we've worked with or some situations where it's not right, that approach. And then others, like, I mean, so gratefully with the Met, they were interested in that sort of raw passion for the kind of creativity and the kind of ethos we had of design. And I guess it's pretty awesome. We've had a lot of successes coming at this from a very unconventional direction. Right. Was there ever shame surrounding not having a formal education or have you just really been able to embrace your instincts and your eye and your vision and your curiosity? I think so. I mean, I I feel that if I'm clustered around a lot of... um 
licensed architects with these, uh, you know, master's degrees from uh, different schools. And uh, I, I'm very competitive, so I kind of have a combination of shame and competitiveness that it's always kind of fueled me a little bit, right? It's part of the, one of the reasons I think I've worked so hard and studied so hard on my own is because I just didn't, I refused to be made second best or, you know, third or fourth best, right? I just was like, sorry. I mean, I still believe in my heart I'm one of the three best architects in the world, believe it or not. That's just that's how what fuels me to Amazing. push myself, you know? Um, even if it's from an amateur rank, it's just, I believe it. But it's tough being in those rooms. And you again, you're trying to get that elevator pitch. And um, I've always tried to understand the words, you know, apprenticeships. And I did do that 10-year apprenticeship in that architecture office after my sophomore year. And I was always proud of that, finishing that. And I became el- eligible for those architecture exams. And started them, and that's where I had my second kind of collapse in architecture. One, one with the school, and the second one was at the licensing exams, where I could not sit through those exams on the computer. It was not, none of it tapped into what I believed in, and drawing, and beautiful drawings, and artisticness. It was just questions about parking spaces and handicap ramps, and just a horrible, horrible exam and a, these fluorescent lit testing centers. And I was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Yeah. And I felt like I had this weird suspicion, superstition that if I finished it, something was going to happen to me or I would lose this untamed quality of beauty first to this sort of um, mechanical engineering and, and waterproof flashing would, <laughs> would, re- would replace them. I just didn't want to become a robot. So I, I left I guess I finished a third of the t- exams and never went back. You know, that was I don't know, that was a long time ago. That's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> but it's, and how can you share with listeners how you guys made your way into film and then how film made its way into starting Roman and Williams? I had an opportunity. A, a, a friend of my father's was an art director in film, pretty successful guy. And um, he always loved my drawings. And he's always said like, hey, Steve, you know, you should call me Stevie because we knew each other since he knew me since I was a little kid but um, you got to work on a film sometimes you, you draw beautifully and fast and I think you'd really enjoy it and I was just tired of the current job I was in I got a call to from this guy to work on a project in Maine and at the time I lived in Southern California and I was a little fatigued on California and I've been I was in a break I just had a breakup and I this idea to go to Maine to work on a film just seemed so fun and I jumped on a plane and I went to Maine in the it was a September, fall, September. And I just, it's actually the first time I went to the East Coast as a, as a kid. And I just fell in love with it. And um, being on the set, the people, I mean, the film must have had 800 people on, the, on it that first day. You know, just other set designers like myself and costume designers and photographers and carpenters and painters. It was literally like a... Yeah, I mean, it's just so much energy. So I mean, I, exa- totally. I mean, I just remember the same thing. I was painting and making things and sculpting and just working in galleries and it was sort of more social than creative and mm-hmm. and film actually was high, dinner every night. <laughs> highly cre- creative and social all at the same time yeah. you're making mm-hmm. so many different things I and mean, i think this really forged us in not feeling limited to one style because in one film you were creating so many different experiences so many different narratives right so so and all these characters i mean we still talk about spaces as characters mm-hmm. and and everything had a different character so we were like what's the character of a chair what's the character of that room and also the speed of the film you know in 8 10 12 weeks maybe we would build set after set rooms houses yeah. restaurants i mean it was fast and furious and, and we both loved it we met working in film together. I went out to a Los Angeles the first time I'd actually been to the West Coast and 
and worked on a film and Stephen kind of walked in the office and we were both in kind of questionable relationships was a long time ago now. And we just started to, to work together. I mean, he had another job at the same time and we'd work together at night and just sort of constantly have this vision together for what these imaginary worlds could be. And I think right. that, that hospital, a lot of what we do, restaurants and hotels are not dissimilar. Even some of the residential work we do, it's about creating this hive, this place where people can, you know, feel maybe they come outside of themselves. I mean, it's something that, again, embraces a philosophy that's beyond just this inanimate object. It starts to breathe and live. And it's something we became pretty interested in and actually so interested in the pieces and parts that we started to kind of outpace film by making things in a way too real, too special, too detailed. And then people started to see the films and the sets and say, wow, now I feel like my house is not as rich or complex or detailed. So it's very ironic, right? No, there was a conversation that um, mm -hmm. I'll never forget it. It's when Ben Stiller was walking through one of our sets, the last movie we, were, we worked on, Duplex. And he was knocking on the walls and he was knocking on this fireplace that we built in this beautiful living room. And he's like, wait a minute, my house is fake. It's hollow. It's fake. I just finished a project where it's just, it all feels fake. This feel, this is real. So the sets, the sets in my life now are more real than my, my, and my house and my life at home is fake. And it was kind of a kind of little comedy, but dark comedy in that moment. And he's like, you have, I have to talk to you guys and you have to help me. And uh, we did, we went to his house and his house was just this kind of, um, to be honest, fake fake Spanish styrofoam moldings on the house. We, <laughs> um, right. And we built them a beautiful house uh, for a couple, took two years and built them a gorgeous Spanish house with wrought iron and solid posts carved into columns out of real solid timber, <laughs> no fake, no fiberglass. But that was your very first residential project or your first time considering yourself as interior designers or interior architects? For me, it was my first time back to architecture was the world I lived in prior to the 10 years in film, it was kind of, I worked in California on big, a lot of big Spanish houses and specifically, right? I knew that detailing really well. And I remember that moment with Ben saying, oh, Ben, you don't know this about me, but it's my background is in architecture and I could do working drawings. I could put working drawings together perfectly and pull permits and supervise construction. And he's like, really? We did that basically, did the set of drawings. So it's sort of like a return to architecture for me. And I knew right. Robin's skills as a production designer that I'd watched for 10 years Robin just, I mean, amazing with directors and, and DPs as, a, as an authority, but also an amazing designer, just visionary about architecture and interiors. And I was like, if I could bring her back to this world that I know, we would be an incredible team. And so working on Ben's house was really a return from that film world into the real world. I brought with me like the secret weapon. <laughs> but me too, right? I mean, we really, we came together with complementary skills because I really had a very strong vision for space but Stephen had this incredible ability to he also had a strong vision but could put it on paper and could express mm -hmm. it and understood how to build it and you know that is just fundamental because if you know, there's a lot of i mean designers and decorators who can talk about it but then you do have to be able to take that quantum leap and break it down mm -hmm. and this speaks to something really important about us because we do believe in the refinement and relevance of that process, of the details, of really understanding how every piece goes together, of really making a building, a piece of furniture, 
Right. Where, you know, in our 50s, we've devoted, I mean, pretty much our whole lives to really being intense students of the things we really wanted to focus on. So at the same time, as much as we're like, we have appetites in all these areas, there's a few areas where we, by focusing intensely, have definitely become expert. And I'm very proud of that because I don't necessarily know that traditional education makes you that kind of expert. I really believe it happens by doing it. Yeah, you take pride in it too more. We have a kind of equal balance of feeling totally terrified and humble and completely intensively devoted to our visions and knowing we're visionaries in equal measure every day. And those things are fighting each other and to bumping into each other. And sometimes one wins and sometimes the other wins, but it's a different path. And, you know, I really now getting to this age and being so grateful to have recognition because there was a long time, Athena, we just didn't. But how do you deal with internal validation versus external validation? Do you feel as though you you allow the accolades to feed you at all? Or is it just an internal peace level, high standards that, you know, you just are on your own path and you kind of aren't necessarily looking at the exterior praise yeah it's funny i mean they're always uh, it's nice to be included in in lists or um being named for something but it, i mean it doesn't mean that much to me my dialogue with myself that inner voice that's kind of critical of myself but also like i was bragging about the top three architects in the world my, my inner voice is also very supportive and um pushes me i mean that i think that just comes from my own inner thing right the, the lists are cool but i tend to think that they they simplify us a lot. They, they, there's a little bit of misunderstanding of our kind of how nostalgic or sentimental we are because we play with these historical things. And they are, journalists are always simplifying it to kind of these sound bites. And I'm always a little frustrated by that because um, it's not so formulaic. There are a few of those milestones that Stephen and I have had. We give ourselves a minute to acknowledge, but we're we're pretty conservative about that. I mean, I think a sense of determination about wanting to continue to achieve different creative goals drives us. And I think that the, the accolades only drive us to kind of make something better or make something new. We've never been very self-satisfied that way. We've always been excited about the kind of next step or engaging kind of our community and our world and creating something lasting and meaningful. And that's something that you just have to keep doing forever. When you're faced with something new, like opening the Guild or doing the Met Galleries or maybe putting out your first furniture collection or objects, when fear comes up for you, or maybe it's not fear, maybe it's just the unknown comes up for you, how do you move past it? Do you guys bounce off of one another? Do you lean on history or your team? What is your process when there is a little bit of uncertainty that creeps in? That's a great, great question. I mean, it's funny, we thrive on these situations where we don't know the jargon, we don't know all the shortcuts, and we don't know the sort of standard ways, whether it's a restaurant, whether it's retail, even at the Met. We love to sit in those early meetings, and we have, we're fearless about asking dumb questions. Um, even I love that. Even when the people at the, oh, at the table are. start laughing, oh, chuckling, oh, they don't know what the gel pack is or some weird conser- conservation thing is. But we just sit there patiently, you know, 
try to smile and uh, be friendly and um, just ask the questions over and over. We both find some kind of enjoyment in that and torturing, to be honest, a little bit torturing back the, all the professionals to make them explain it in simple terms to us because you always pull out these incredible little um, generalizations that maybe can be can be questioned and and our clients will watch that happen and then they're like thank you so much for for doing that you guys we're so happy you're here because you're asking all these questions that's happened to us over and over again and we're lucky to have these clients that are just like it's fun to watch you do that too it's very right though because you know what he's saying and i actually Stephen, i haven't thought about it before we're very confident in our kind of ability to be vulnerable in those moments. We really are because in another area, that's like I was saying before, we're very confident. Mm -hmm. So when you have that reserve of confidence on kind of one side, then when you walk in that room, you're like, okay, I'm gonna question this even if no one else is. Because you know, Athena, we, we all know this. People sit and often out of insecurity, pretend they know things they don't know. I see it in yeah. every meeting, yeah. every room, high and low. I mean, I'll be with Stephen and three it. engineers, uh -huh. and I did not study architecture. And I will say, well, why not? Like, and Stephen, bless him, will engage me in a conversation that I am not skilled enough to have, but my intuition, which I trust endlessly, and my yeah. instincts will drive me. And I have had impacts on big architectural decisions by doing that. And he has on so many things. And because you, you know, of our kind of sturdiness and asking those questions, you, you can't be afraid of it. Because if you don't go in there with the dumb question, if you don't just keep your fundamental kind of love of the process and intuition intact, you get to something on the surface. You'll never go deep. Mm -hmm. It's like a relationship. Right. You cannot go yeah. deep unless you say like, okay, I know this is going to be dumb and I have to sit here and acknowledge I have no idea what they're all talking about. Sometimes I can't do it. And sometimes I just say, you got to do it. You know what I mean? And everybody turns their head and sometimes you get a snicker and yeah. it reminds you of grade school and it's terrible, but you, you do it. Actually, Robin, it's so funny that you're bringing this up because I was going to ask you, I found this quote that you said, I'm proud to have become a woman who has not been on the periphery and that I've conquered a lot of fears of coming to the table and not being afraid to say, no, I disagree. And that's something that I think that our listeners really need to hear because I remember when I was doing my cookbook, um, I'd never done a cookbook before and I was so meek and shy to say, what it is that I knew I wanted visually, you know, and it, it's hard to find that inner confidence to stand up for what you know you see and trust and believe, but but it's a process. Yeah, especially right. surrounded by professional cookbook people, right, who say, no, Athena, you have to do it like this. And yeah, the professionals are a bit bossy. And I think Robert and I find a lot of enjoyment in um kind of gently putting them on the spot and asking questions. And I think it's the moment I remember working with Robin and seeing her in, in these tough meetings, production meetings on films, which are, sometimes they run by like studios, you know, and so the studio would show up and all the black cars and there'd just be like eight guys, right? Coming into a, into a room saying, what the fuck's going on? It's intense. In this fucking goddamn fucking <laughs> film, you know, and just like, yeah. And then Robin walks in, you know, and just in her high pants. <laughs> You know, <laughs> high-waisted pants, these big shoes on. Like, I, mean, I just was like, oh, my God. And she put them all in their place, like, in the gnarliest way. Oh, I love this. Life. It was, like, the funnest thing to watch in the world. 
actually, when Stephen brings it up, I had 20 years, Athena, of heavy, tough talk. And then I was like, wait a minute. I want to be, and I was, you know, I always liked to kind of feel pretty. And, and also, so I would walk in. I remember uh, Nick Wexler, who was a great producer who produced everything from drugstore cowboys, so many things. And I walked in the room with him. He gave me my first job as a production designer. And I was actually 26. I lied about my age. And I had to go in and convince the studio, Warner Brothers, to give me the job. But I remember this and I came. So I was like, oh, I have to look nice. Right. So it was summer in L.A. It was like 100 degrees. And, you know, I wore like a halter dress. I weighed like 98 pounds. And I could see them all going like, what? No (laughs) fucking way. And Nick just was like, listen to her. And I took I stood up in front of the room and I did it and and I I made it happen. And Mm -hmm. I just, you know, so I always believed you could again. That's a slash. Right. You could right. be the toughest person in the room and you could also feel artist, beautiful artist. Yeah, artist and, and yes, and be yeah. artistic. Yeah. So I, I think that's that's definitely part of the slash. Sure. <laughs> so many slashes. <laughs> Talk a little bit about your process and the newness of entering into conceiving and then building and then opening RW Guild. Oh, my God. It's been the like, well, first of all, joy of my life. I have to say this. I really, I mean, Stephen and I talked about this, Athena. We've been together since, uh, I don't know, 1992. And we've been talking about it since then, creating something that also was just ours, was Mm -hmm. not for a client, was not for a studio. Like all these conversations, all about learning how to speak our mind and collaborate. This has been something that just is for us. Yeah, but it was like on the right. back, back burner. It was on that little slow, slow the, burner it the, simmer. It was on the aga, on the aga stove, on the very low temperature. <laughs> like twenty <laughs> 15, years, twenty yeah. years. I mean, forever. <laughs> but how did you carve out the time with already an insanely busy? I know, right? That's why design firm kept never getting put to the front because we, we were so busy, right? Hotels, restaurants, clients. We just never had a chance to do it. So I have to. We had to really kind of concentrate to see what kicked us in to slide it forward on the stove. I'm going to say it was the Met. And it was the Met because we were, we basically were focused on decorative arts. We were just in that mode with Luke and Eleanor. Uh, We'd already been looking for spaces and investors and we had this plan. It wasn't going well for sure. You're right. Because we we had collapsed with two other partners because they just, the money deals were weird and they were trying to steal it from us. And had you ever done that before? Like raised money and entered into that? Money and, know that again that we didn't know the jargon and so we were kind of getting um put through the a uh, couple times we were about to sign on the dotted line and we just got up out of the room and walked off because we just didn't feel comfortable and we're, thank god we we did that but we were at the met i think it was early on in the met when we were just being put through the ringer at the met by these two amazing curators incredible luke and eleanor who were take mm-hmm. really took us through the whole education on the way the met works and every object in that gallery and while we were in these long meetings, we'd go to like two meetings a, a week that were like literally 10-hour meetings. I mean, we, <laughs> this was like hardcore school in the dungeon of the Because they were mentors for us. We hadn't yeah. had mentors in a long time, right? We'd been mentors. And, and honestly, we've had some great collaborations, great yeah. colleagues, but not a lot of mentors. And these yeah. mentors yeah. were talking to us about the history of objects. And guilds. The history of mm. the history of decorative arts. And we were like, a eureka moment. You know, you don't have yeah. that many in well, your Eleanor, life. Eleanor used a term one day saying, you know, people think guilds are always Geppetto in a workshop carving little puppet 
or something like that. But she said the merchant guilds are are something people don't know a lot about. And we're like, what's a merchant guild? And um, she said, well, of course, they're merchants who collected beautiful objects from around the world. Sometimes merchant guilds also design their own objects. And we just we just realized that we snapped into this historical category of a merchant guild. And a maker guild. So we basically, again, slash, right? Of like we want we want to Slash. reinvent the guild for a new century. What's the actual definition for guild? Talk about asking a question that makes you sound a little unintelligent. It's a group it's a society. It's a right? society or a group that collects to protect the integrity, integrity, the materials used, like the quality of the materials, and they kind of mm-hmm. collaborate and collect and and sometimes and hold secrets, right? They hold secrets of manufacturing processes. Um, just to be part of that guild to kind of increase its value and make it special, right? Yeah, I mean, um, it's really like yeah. it's a kind of society and association. It could be craftsmen, it can be merchants, and they have also similar interests. They have a similar philosophy, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they together support each other in the making of things. And I'll tell you, Athena, in this moment, and honestly, post-60s, which has become intensely narcissistic about I am the greatest artist, mm-hmm. I am singular. Stephen and I are very interested in that collaboration. We're a couple. Our names are not on the door. We didn't call either company Stephen Alish and Robin Standifer. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. interest. So the guild was a way to say we are a community of like-minded people. And we have we are makers in our own guild, right? So we create our own collection. Very meaningful. Was that the first time that you did your own collection yeah. yes. for the guild? Yep. Yes. We did. Wow. Um, we've been working on that for a couple of years pretty diligently just putting together the furniture and lighting that were not associated with projects. Because we've been designing furniture and lighting on every job since we started. So over the years, we got practiced a lot. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, we put together these um, 50, 60 pieces for this original collection. And you planned it to launch with the Guild, or was that? Yeah. It was the reason to launch the Guild. Yep. I mean, mm-hmm. we knew, though, it was a combination, again, of our philosophy. We knew we wanted to create this line of lighting and furniture. But we knew that for lighting and furniture to breathe for them to have kind of a cultural impact on people's lives, they needed friends. Mm-hmm. They needed other objects to play with, right? Yeah. They needed a lot of supporting characters. So we said, who are people in the world that we want to join our guild yeah. that we think make things with this same spirit? And we went to Japan and we went to Scandinavia and we went to America and Mexico and mm-hmm. and sort of started to kind of collect these we friends. Had this, we had this fascination with not being stuck with American made. We wanted it to be international and and about quality. Yeah, yeah. So it was about quality and authenticity versus being national to one place. So this was a kind of a, you know, a guild that was about the senses and a guild that was kind of reinventing the definition across then, the world. And then we had to have food and drink had to be part of it because we always had that music, food and drink. Yeah, like always... what's furniture without music, food and drink? <laughs> of course. Now you're speaking my language. I love it. Right? It's kind of up your alley. But, you know, originally you know, we were going to run the restaurant entirely and I wanted to be the chef. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Still, that, still, that lasted still, a little while. I still secretly do. And um, it's just, just going to take <laughs> a little time. Amazing. There is no stopping you two. Oh, my God. For solidly a year, that was the idea. And then we were like, oh. It's too much. We're not and, sure uh, that's a good idea. I wasn't the right fit to cook that delicate finer kind of style of cooking. We had an interest in having a chef who was a woman 
And yeah. she had a reel in yeah. again to celebrate her because women chefs we think are under celebrated and they have a really also, yeah. they have a beautiful elevated point of view, but also a domestic point of view. And also that sometimes in the world of chefs becomes a bad word, yeah. but it's not because yeah. people who cook for their families. So these is, we're very interested in redefinition, in challenging definitions of luxury, of innovation, of what a home cook is. I mean, I've had food cooked by people at home that were as equally remarkable as many, many chefs yeah. I know. So, yeah. so Marie kind of also is very highly trained, but it was a beautiful kind of chef for her family. And that hybrid and her mm. willingness to embrace that hybrid, we really loved. And so then that's part of the guild, right? She yeah. became part of the family. And then Stephen can kind of coined this idea for the food in the restaurant of French sort of meets California because mm -hmm. this healthy West Coast kind of quality meets this kind of elevated, very flavorful French. And I think that's what La Mercerie is. And people love it. And we're so we're just excited about all this strata at the guild that we get to engage with and control it's not that we mind the oversight i mean we have incredible clients amazing wonderful clients but but it's nice to fail and succeed on your own terms yeah i love that so what were some of the things with the guild that took you by surprise because you knew that you were going to create this collection you know you, you knew you were going to curate all the artisans that you sell you knew there would be a restaurant but did the events and the hosting and the content creation and photography and the blog was that something you anticipated from the onset I think so I think we yeah. rolled, rolled with that pretty um pretty well I mean I was well. always a good editor like yeah. I, there was a moment I mm -hmm. thought I could be maybe an editor of a magazine like at some point in the journey so I always right. had an interest, you know what I mean, in photography and all of that. Like even, even as we do our projects, like early on, we decided not to have a marketing arm, but get a PR firm. Do you know what I mean? And take really good pictures of our projects. Like yeah. that was just something because we came from film. So we knew strong visuals was, yeah. was critical yeah. to yeah. people's sort of seduction in our spaces. And it's an extension of the storytelling that you're already doing. Yeah. Totally. I tell you, it's kind of nuts and bolts, but I think what really kicked our butt and surprised us, was, you know, over the years it's been designers. You know, we we watch budgets, we hover over budgets, we we're always involved, and we always always see creep in budgets because of construction and with clients, or sometimes it's just the client's appetite. You work on big hotels that have two hundred million dollar budgets for these these big projects, right? And um, sometimes you see them go up to three hundred million, and we always watch that and we think, oh wow, that's that's tough. But now when we did our when we did our project, we had a budget. Oh and um, I think it was like two million or something to do our store. And I think by the time we were done with plumbing and mechanical and heating and Sorry. all those all this stuff, we were like seven million. We were freaked. I mean, I think we chiseled that back down a little bit, but there was and we also how about this is what happened with Ian is that we got stuck in a pattern where our deadline to open was being pushed, you know, like a year or something with the rent. And the rent is just huge. But Robin and I and again, we saw that with every hotel, every every project we worked on, we always see their construction extend way past their original date. But we were really upset by that, and we freaked out. And um, we wouldn't let it wouldn't happen. let it happen. And we so we had a lot of it was a very intense moment as we got more expensive and extended our time. We refused to let it happen to us. I mean, of course, the budget slipped, but it was. 
I mean, geez, it was such a learning curve. And I tell you, I've been around construction my whole life, but now as owners and holding the debt and everything, you just really makes you grow up. I mean, yeah, you know, you look at it differently. Still, there's things like tomorrow we're going to the store to install the Christmas tree. And like, you know, I just will not let COVID or, <laughs> or you know what I mean? Like a financially challenging year interfere with a sense of joyfulness and holiday. So, you know, you just have to know how to spend yeah. it and you have to be smart about it. And yeah. And yet, you know, you asked about the events. The events was actually, I mean, it's almost like we we started a hospitality brand because I actually didn't expect that. Mm-hmm. I mean, people really love having events there. And that was because something. Of film, because of film too, Athena, what we would do is for our events, we would have trucks pull up and um, empty our entire store <laughs> in a few hours, put everything onto trucks, have an amazing party. And, and put it all back. The trucks would come back at one in the morning and put everything back in the store in the morning. It would be like it never happened. And the sales team would walk in and be like, did you have a party last night? <laughs> so <laughs> crazy. And, um, it happened a lot. And yeah. I mean, obviously in 19, I mean, none now, which is yeah. a little sad, but it will again. And it did become a place, I mean, from the Rachel Comey fashion show to the big, you know, Fiden's launch of the you know, women artists. I mean, we're really proud about creating a place that has a kind of cultural component and has that kind of consciousness because that that's just part of how we were raised and how we think. And so that's something we really hope, you know, I, I mean, again, as we get through this really kind of tricky time globally, we just hope that continues because we always wanted the Guild to be a Guild. Yeah. Well, I think there's such, even for a large space, there's so much intimacy there through the design and through the beauty that I think that that's probably what appeals to so many people for events because it's it's hard to find a beautiful event space. Yeah, I know, right? They're so neutral. Exactly. Neutrally, right? And that's what we wanted to do um, is make a less neutral place, a place that, again, that, that had some attachments. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? that people get yeah. attached to. And mm-hmm. so that started to happen. So now we're, you know, look again, when you even ask about content, web now is really a mm-hmm. full-fledged sort of, part of the guild and it really wasn't before we were pretty fierce about bricks and mortar we were like yeah yeah the website that's good people can know about us but we're about touch right Right. touch it and now in covid we realized we have this big community that wants to be part of our philosophy and web Mm -hmm. i'm happy to say has really kind of taken off in a way it didn't before because we had no choice like it basically kept us alive and So now, though, it's exciting because it's broadened our community across the world. And we're kind of crazy. We still get every email about every broken cup, but seeing them come from, and even the the analytics, seeing people in Australia and people in Japan and people in Brazil, it's really... I know, we're on every email. Even if somebody says, can you please unsubscribe me to your... um Weekly updates. We get that email. We're like, what? We're going to have to write back. Wow. Really? Oh, are you sure? Maybe we'll send less. This is a good reminder to never unsubscribe, all you listeners. Robin and Stephen will know. We're like, oh. But it's funny. Well, one day, like, in the middle of COVID, somebody wrote about the candle not smelling strong enough or something. And Stephen decided to just go in there and write back. Yeah. And Clayton, who's amazing, who's our head of retail, was like, oh, my God. And the guy and Stephen had a dialogue. and. Yeah. Again, in this beautiful web way, the guy appreciated it because it was a very real and transparent dialogue. And that kind of transparency is is something that we just kind of we're pretty into. I love that. So any of the creatives that I have on the podcast, I always ask two specific questions. 
One of them is, as you think back, navigating your personal journey, your, your creative journey, if you can hone in on one specific hurdle that you faced on your journey, something that challenged you or a roadblock or a fear, and how you navigated through that. Let's think about that. Yeah. I guess um, here's here's one that's, I think, pretty relevant to all this conversation is what one of the things you touched on, which was figuring out how to deal with investors and what partners mean. For me, a partner has always meant Stephen. So it's like someone I trust emphatically and we're just super connected. Now, partners in the financial space and the investment space are a very different thing. And we have been blessed, I'll tell you. I mean, we did in the end and we waited it out, found a beautiful group of people who just believe in us. And and I'll tell you, though, the process of going through that, years, years, Athena, of getting right close and then also giving up on Guild. And we almost signed with some big furniture brands that you will know, like on the dotted lines for them to kind of own Stephen and I, like and be, do these collections where we couldn't do stuff for anyone else. And we literally like pen hovering over line, like in yeah. Netflix series, pulling pen away mm-hmm. and yeah. not signing yeah. and multiple times. So these were really scary moments where, I mean, and really years of it that I started to not give up on the idea of guild, but give up like I thought it would like live only in my imagination. And it really mm. started to scare me because it was such a dream for Stephen and I. And and so that was just super challenging. But we just stuck, I guess, to our guns. We said we have, there are certain things we can't give up. But we were we, kind of giving up and then we met our- We met the, Ben, we yeah. We met a guy in Chicago. We were working at a hotel with Ben and um, I won't put him on the spot, but Ben, he just- was asking us like, hey, what's up with that idea? And we were kind of slightly exhausted and scared. And he offered to um, to help to help. And we just uh, he, we love this guy who's so it's kind of funny. He's the guy from Chicago in the end, right? Because it was just he was so honest and just so straightforward and such a such a supportive guy. We went so, to some diner and mm-hmm. sat on these three stools, right lined up with each other, and ate like some crazy giant chicken parm or something. And then he was just like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to invest. And we were like, we didn't even know what to say because we were pretty exhausted and a little demoralized. And then it just, it changed. We had that support and the momentum started, but it was a long, it was a long road and it was scary. And we're just now, I just so blessed it existed, but it was a uphill battle. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, sometimes it's very, it's been hard and um for me to leave architecture office years ago, that, that wasn't so hard because moving the film was was really fun and the culture on those films was amazing. But what it is, it's about the drafting room. If you could visualize it for a second, even the drafting rooms in high school, everybody sits down at these tables, drawing paper and pencils and erasers and sketch pads. And the architecture offices were the same way, small kind of offices, but where all we just draw all day and the sounds of the paper and smells and these tools, the blueprint machines. Film was the same way, actually. It was all hand drawing. Everything in film for those whole 10 years was hand drawing. Um, but when we came back to architecture, this is kind of a Rip Van Winkle moment. There was nobody drawing anymore. It was all computers, all CAD. Mm. And I was right. by hand. I still draw by hand. And uh, But I'm like, I feel like the only person left on earth. And I know I'm not. I'm friends now on Instagram with dozens and dozens of uh, architects and designers. It's such a beautiful skill. So beautiful. Yeah, I'm so proud of it. And I love it. And I, But I miss that drafting room so much and being around um, 
men and women who draw and just the joking with each other, the walking table to table, the sort of kind of healthy competitiveness of people drawing. And I mean, one of the reasons I draw as well as I do is because I was I worked alongside people who drew really beautifully, and I just was like I you just learn from them. And, they never um, drew as beautifully as you. And uh, was it just? Aww, <laughs> sweet. No, I fell in love with him over the drawings. He came into the office. He opened the drawings. Mm-hmm. There was him and the drawings, and I was like, oh, I'm done. And she loved like, to I'm, sit. I am so yeah, she done. loved to sit on the high side of the drafting table, kind of her head and just watch him draw and talk while I. Oh, that's <laughs> still, so still beautiful. Posted that picture on Instagram the other day because it was basically you in that position. Exactly, like, it's my favorite place. So that table to me is everything, and but I do I have a few people now. It's actually. To be honest, I have a nephew who works in my office with us now, Joseph, from my grandmother's side of the family, and he draws beautifully. And I'm like, oh, my God, Joseph's here. And um, Joseph's got this beautiful hand, and sometimes you know, he draws. We share an office while he draws, and I'm just so happy. But it just brings back my memories of, of those tables and people drawing. It's just something I'll, I'll always miss, and it's hard to forget about, you know? Mm. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Well, on the flip side, I'd also love to hear what was a specific catalyst that perhaps took you from, as you kind of embraced yourself or felt embraced maybe by the creative community or a time when you stood in I am instead of am I with a question mark? Oh, gosh. I mm-hmm. Could it be one of these um, award type things? Because I remember John, John Sohn is this amazing architect from like the 1860s, 1870s. Um, in London, there's a beautiful museum called the John Sohn. Right? I think it's just, to me, it's like a church. It's just this beautiful place, mm-hmm. beautiful drawings, beautiful study, kind of a strange guy, which is amazing architect, very artistic artist architect. And we were working on the match. You know, he was part of the dialogue a lot. And, a lot. Um, I don't know. It was, I think, a year into the match or something. We get a call one day, and it was a John Soane Museum in London, and they said that they wanted to give us the, the annual award for um, creativity. and, and the kind vision, of an, A visionary and, award, which for us was like, well, it's... To have that English, very uppity English group give us an award and name us and name me and name Robin. And, I, and they actually asked me for a drawing, and I did a six-foot-tall mm. watercolor slash drawing. They auctioned off the museum and for a bunch of money. And um, I mean, just to see that my big drawing exhibited with all these people in tuxedos and just uh, it just felt I felt just like I was part of um, this very educated very intelligent group of people old world kind of thinkers that's that was just a highlight of my life of, you yeah, know just I, mean, to, I think yeah. it, if I'm ever it, down I just think about it it right? captured <laughs> both collect well again it captured both engaging with that very formal community that we often don't feel really yeah. sort of uh, celebrated by and or Luke, part Luke of. Sice, Luke Sison went to the went to the event, the, the toughest nails curator at the Met, who's kind of tough on us. But the uh, smartest English. person we know. He gave us a little introduction speech that just like was the cool, And he gave us the award. Uh, it was it was it was a, a fine a fine day. And um yeah it was <laughs> Oh that's so beautiful guys. I love you too. I love your love. I love your brain. I love your creativity. I'm going to ask one last question, which would be advice that you would offer somebody who's thinking of, you know, exploring a non-traditional career path and perhaps taking the road less traveled. Is there something that you wish you knew on your own journey or that you want to share about some of our listeners who are about to embark on theirs? I want to talk about just fierce 
confidence in your heart, you know, and your soul in the midst of adversity, because no matter how successful you, there's just constant adversity. And there's some idea, and this is why I know you ask some of these questions, this idea, especially we get asked this by a lot of young people, that's like, you've arrived, you're there, you've won all those awards, like, look at your company. And you and we've won the National Design Award. And we got to um, spend some time with Michelle Obama. For me, one of the, those finest moments that was, I, I mean, very, very, very special. But we also, one of the things she required us to do was to give back, was to talk to New York City kids. And you could see the simplicity of the questions they asked. Will I make money? Yeah. Like, what's up? What's my day like? Will I drive a great car? Do you know what I mean? Like, we're cool friends. And I'm like, you know, those things still kind of matter. And there's still days where you think, I haven't seen any friends in a while because all I do is work. Like, I mean, so it's it's really about finding that sense of balance and truly believing in yourself because there is no traditional path anymore. That idea of the traditional path doesn't just doesn't even work in our new society. I mean, Mm -hmm. people who go to Pratt or Parsons or, you know what I mean? Like Columbia for architecture, they get out and it's a dynamic world where then there's a lot of different people and a lot of different channels now. So I, I really, I really believe it's about confidence in your fundamental yeah. soul and what you love. I truly believe, and not to sound mm-hmm. too heady or too mushy, but believing in what you love w- will take you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's an incredible thing to share. It's and it's so true. Yeah, I was also going to just add to. I mean, a little cocky, but I just think a person <laughs> just just say yes to everything. Just- <laughs> Always one. say yes. If someone says, "Could you design an airport?" Say yes. If, if, can you design you know, a house in the middle of the ocean? Just yes. You know, can you. Um, I mean, just always just go for it and just just go for it. Never hesitate and say, "I don't know if I could do that." Just lose that from your language. Just always just say absolutely yes and then go for it and I figure just think, it out. Yeah, that is amazing, guys. Thank you so much. This was an incredible conversation. I can talk with you guys for hours. I know. It was too. Thank you so much for your generosity. Thanks for including us in this. That was Robin Standifer and Stephen Alesh, co-founders of the award-winning design firm Roman & Williams. Thanks for tuning in to More Than One Thing. Stay tuned for new episodes on Wednesdays and be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening now. If you enjoyed today's show, I would be so grateful if you could take a moment to rate and review us. And I'd also love your feedback. Which multi-hyphenates would you like to hear on the show? Send guest suggestions or any other feedback to more than one thing podcast at gmail.com. And be sure to check us out on our newly launched Instagram account, more than one thing podcast and you can find me personally on social at iswoon if you would like to receive the more than one thing newsletter please head over to i-swoon.com and sign up for the newsletter i'm athena calderon and you've been listening to more than one thing